This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept up until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word. All right, that's a long, uh, that's a long scripture that we have before us, and it may have been one where perhaps you were a little uncomfortable. These, some of these themes aren't the most comfortable, or, or you might have gone, wow, today's the day I decide to show up to church when they're talking about hellfire? Perfect, right? How perfect. Um, but first of all, I want to I wanna say this is, um, and I'm not just saying this because I want to make it palatable, it re- this really is far more rich and nuanced than it comes across at first blush, and that's important. And we'll explore that a little bit here. But also, um, I, I want to point out something. I just want to open up with saying, look, it's, uh, it's not just Christians that say some of these things. It's just uh, what, what meaning is associated with them. Uh, this, this week, um, a popular news outlet, I'm forgetting which one actually at the moment, but something came across my feed that, you know, due to global warming, one of the largest glaciers in the world could drop into the ocean sooner than expected and could cause catastrophic um, issues in our world. And that's, that's just in the news, like catastrophe. Um, and there's, you know, we, we know, like scientifically, something's going to happen. There will be a comet or a 
issue with heat or that glacier will fall into the sea and things will, will stop. Life on earth will cease. It's coming. It's just going to happen, right? And so, you know, if, if uh, you could say, yeah, but from that vantage point, it's not God doing it, right? So, so there's a few options. Either God's doing it or else it's random or else it's only our fault, right? It's just us. And, and that's all on the table. If you read the news article, it's some of it's just, I mean, these things happen, but parts of it are, it's the emissions that we put into the world. It's the ways that we use up resources. It's our impact. Um, and sometimes we see that as a, as a reason to point fingers at each other, and other times we just say, well, you know what? We didn't mean to. So, oh well. Um, but that's not really how we feel usually about the ways that, that we destroy things and other people destroy things. That's, that's not usually how we feel. Listen to the political and social discourse. Just listen to it. Just tune in, and it's hard to do. It's sad to do. But tune into it, and you will hear that we don't feel just ambivalent toward people that destroy things. It, it's just it depends on what we care about the most. But think about this. Um, we want people to be destroyed, to be fired, to be shunned. It's, in a sense, if you were to step back from our day, it's like, Old Puritanism is, is back, but it's not in the church anymore. Think about it. Think about your least favorite elite, cultural elite, your, the one you just can't stand. Or think about your least favorite politician, right? And they die suddenly of cancer. Or worse, they're killed. How would you feel? Would you weep for them? Or would something go kind of through the back of your head that would subtly say either, ah well, or they deserved it? Mm. So are we really against judgment? Isn't that the murderous seed in the heart? Now many of you have heard me say this, you know, you want a great cultural indicator watch the movie Trolls. You want to see how we feel about judgment? Watch the movie Trolls. I'm, I'm not kidding. Trolls, it, it, I, and I've, I've said this, some of you have heard me say this, this is one of my favorites, but I was shocked at the end of this movie because it was like everybody was, was, so this, you know, cheeriest movie of all time, lots of poofy hair and dancing and happiness, right? And at the end, uh, the chef and Creek, who the chef is the, the bad older woman, um, and Creek is the traitor, the young traitor, um, they, they have this moment where the chef grabs Creek and is about to put Creek in her mouth, and you're like, ooh, the one evil person's going to get killed by the other evil person. And what happens? The earth opens its mouth they fall in, it chomps down, and then everybody in the theater and the little trolls go, hey! And the th everybody in the theater was like, yeah! And I'm like, oh, crap. Excuse me. But, like, we love judgment. We love judgment. Like, they, these sinful people just got swallowed by the earth, and when it's couched in the right imagery and terms, we just go, yeah! Whoa, what does that mean, right? 
So before you go getting uncomfortable with the Bible, uh, watch trolls. We are more judgmental than we like to think. But there's, so, so I want you to see that. And then now I want you to see, there's the moment I tried to pull up the video. But, but the earth turns into a beast and swallows them. It's crazy. Okay. So I want you to see that. I want you to see there's more going on in the Bible. So we're going we're gonna to pick apart that this was the whole uh, third chapter of the book of 2 Peter. And I want you to see it's not only about judgment, it's mostly about something else. It's mostly about something else. And we're going to approach the scripture asking three questions. What's with the fires and the floods? Do we stay or do we go? And how then should we feel? So this is your, this is your end of the world talk for the year, Mission Church. Okay? This is, this is it. Brace yourselves. So what's with the fires and the floods? Um, the author here is Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he foretells that these scoffers uh, will say, where's the return of this Jesus you Christians believed in, right? And, and people do say that, among other things. And he will say, uh, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And we know the earth didn't perish, right? As some people. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then a bit later, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. First of all, I want to, I want to show that this exhibits something about Peter and that is that Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus because he is referencing a number of things that come from Jesus' teaching, especially Matthew 24, where Matthew uses the same kind of language about the thief, the idea of a thief, and he compares his return to the days of Noah but, but outside of that, why all this destructive language? Why? And of course, in ancient times, as with now, you can, if, you can interpret these events as all natural, right? You could say the rain um, in Noah's day was the cause of the flood. And by the way, um, there's, there's good reason to say that that might have been a localized flood where the, where the people were, um, as opposed to a worldwide one. You don't need to, you don't need to see that. It doesn't, there, there's options there. But but you could just say it was just the rain. The flood came because of the rain. And on this week's, uh, my, on my news feed this week, the mega glacier could just be because of global warming. And, um, you know, and it could just be the natural effect. And it, it's just affecting our human way of life. And, and it's because of our environmental impact. And either way, you can look and say that there's, there's not a God involved in this. But the ancient mind usually attributed these things to God as well. And, the, and you might know that. And that's often looked at as kind of primitive. But I just want to seed a little question in here and ask this. What if, I know this is a stretch for us moderns, but what if people closer to the genesis of life had some insight that we don't? Are you open to that? Or is it just us that know it all, right? <laughs> what if they had a gift of proximity and we have a gift of perspective and proficiency? We can look at data with technological help, but they were closer. They were more proximate to these early times. What if that actually gave them some insight? 
And what if the truth is that God is complex enough to create the elements of the world, cause them to move in the ways that they do, but retains power over them to determine their purposes? What I mean is, what if God like, actually creates the elements of the earth to where they do respond to things? So there's, there's global warming and there is a response within the environment that's natural, but at the same time, God could hold a determination of their purpose. That's outside of our capability, but is it outside of God's? That's how these events are being framed in the scripture. There's this future destruction by fire, and it's, it's natural and has meaning. And there's this destruction in the past by water that was also natural and has meaning. What do I mean the fire is natural? So Google, how's the earth going to end? You could Google it right now. Google it. On Wikipedia, your first option that will pop up, and it will prophesy to you, it will say this. Here's how the world's going to end. The increase in Earth's surface temperature will cause a runaway greenhouse effect, creating conditions more extreme than present-day Venus, and heating Earth's surface enough to, guess what, melt it. Isn't that what Peter said? Isn't that interesting? How in the world did Peter have access to that information? The good news of this passage, though, is that events have a further purpose and are part of a divinely ordained process. So what's the purpose, according to Scripture? Biblically, the flood is described as a few things, to those of us who look back. What is it? One, it's a judgment, because there's wickedness. But also, it's something of a test, right? Because Noah, this man who's on the earth, there's a lot of people on the earth, and he's told to build a, build a boat and get people in the boat. And he, and, he, and he tells other people about it, right? And he's scoffed at, and people go, you're an idiot. Um, but, but to Noah, who believes and builds the boat that seems ridiculous, it's his salvation. And what, why is that? It's because he trusted the word, words that God said over the prevailing thinking of his day. It's a test. Um, and then it's salvation to him, not just because of, you know, it, it proves he has faith, but, but literally the earth is renewed, it's utterly cleansed, evil is wiped out, and he lands the boat, or the boat lands, I should say, and he, he's there on the earth, enjoying the renewal with his family and with animal life. It's, they're all still there. So what about fire? What does that symbolize in the Bible and ancient literature? And what does it mean here? Well, it's paralleled with the flood in both Peter and Matthew. They are put next to each other, and the one explains the other. The, the flood explains the fire. So therefore, it has the same meaning. And I think it has the same kind of trifold meaning. Is it a judgment? Sure. Throughout all history, it has that connotation. And the same is true today. So Abby has a favorite country song, a little bit dark. Um, and you're going to go, why do you teach your children these things? But it's Independence Day by Martina McBride. And so if, if any of you have ever listened to country music, uh, this, is a, this is a 90s gold classic. And, uh, and in it, Martina McBride speaks as a child with, a, with an alcoholic and abusive father. And on, on Independence Day, when everybody is out getting drunk um, and she's out at a party, her mom lights the house on fire and destroys her father. It's pretty dark. And Martina McBride sings, let freedom ring, let the white doves sing, let the whole world know that today is a day of reckoning. Let the weak be strong, let the right be wrong, roll the stone away, let the guilty pay, 
it's Independence Day. And we sing it almost every year or hear it in the background during fireworks. We do. And it's dark, right? But as in that song, fire can definitely mean judgment. It can be, it can be this, is, this is finality, this is judgment. But it, it also has these other elements. It's also a test. There are fine uh, minerals you test with heat. Um, and, you know, I was like, is Adam going to be here to correct me on this, right? Because he, he could, if you don't know Adam, he, he knows all about the minerals and the heat and the refining process. So anyway, Adam, when you listen to this later, oh, he is here. Oh, great. Now I have to get my, uh, I was looking over by those guys, but Adam, I'm sorry. You could just come up here and teach this part if you want. So, so, but heat's, heat's a factor. Jesus taught our works would be tested like building materials. And, and some of these things burn down easily. We were in Astoria, Oregon, and they, they've had these giant fires over and over again because they built everything out of wood um, from the surrounding hillsides, and it all burns up. And so they started building stuff out of stone, right? And, and you learn these things. Some things can handle the heat, some can't. Um, and finally, so it can be a test of quality, but finally, it can purify. So we go to Bisbee every year, um, pre-announcement here. We're going there for 4th of July. You can come listen to Martina McBride sing Independence Day um, with us in Bisbee and, uh, and go on the Queen Mine Tour. And here's the Queen Mine. So how do they, how do they get the, the copper purified? This is where Adam will school me any day. Um, but I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say fire's involved, okay? Adam can tell you the rest. There's a lot of fire. They heat it up. And what happens to the impurities? As far as I can tell, they're dissolved, right? Here's another phrase from 2 Peter. They, they dissolve away. And that's how purification happens. So fire, as with the past flood, it, it is a judgment, but its purpose isn't destruction. It refines and purifies, first of all. The fire isn't trying to destroy the copper. It's bringing it out. It's purifying it. And that's why this scripture is beautiful. It's why all throughout the Bible, Israel is going to inherit a land and earth someday that is beautified. Isaiah 65, 17, 700 years before Jesus says before, for behold, I create a new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I mean, that speaks to judgment, and there is judgment in Isaiah but it's pointing forward to restoration. And of course, the, the rest of the New Testament says the same thing. Revelation, the book that terrifies us all, ends with a new heavens and new earth of restoration. So what's with the floods and the fire? They're rich imagery that show us there's actually a redemptive and restorative purpose. God is bringing a judgment, but it has a good purpose. So do we stay or do we go? Here's a, here's a good question. Um, I'm going to hang out in country music here for a little bit just because I want to punish you all because uh, I know none of you like it. Does anybody like it these days? Danny, you like it, Danny? Oh, good. We've got, we've got 10%. We're going old today, Luke. Yeah. And I don't mean Martina McBride old. I mean old. So I'm hanging out in country music, the Carters. Oh, oh I'm, I'm older than Luke wanted to go. I'm beyond AP, Sarah, and Maybelle Carter. They took country music from the front porches to the airwaves. AP Carter, he's a fruit salesman, starts collecting songs of the country folk and popularizing them. You're like, where is he going with this? I love it. 
Guess, so guess what this man, so, so many of our old popular country songs and some of, some of today's were collected from American front porches by this guy who then took them and got them onto the commercial airwaves. And guess what else he collected when he did that on accident? Our theology, our beliefs, right? The folk theology of rural America that's influenced most of us, to be honest. And see, our, our view of the Bible's relationship to our current day and our expectation of what's coming next in redemptive history shapes the way we live and our sense of faith. It does to us now. It did in the past. I want you to see what happened in the 30s, okay? So here, A.P. Carter has taken a song he's learned on somebody's front porch. Listen to this. This is during the Great Depression. For the fear of hearts of men are failing, for these are latter days we know. The Great Depression is now spreading. God's word declared it would be so. I'm going where there's no depression, to the lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave this world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven. I'm going there. In that bright land, there'll be no hunger, no orphan children crying for bread, no weeping widows toil or struggle, no shrouds, no coffins, and no death. I'm going where there's no depression, to the lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave the world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven. I'm going there. This dark hour of midnight nearing, tribulation time will come. The storm will hurl in midnight fear and sweep lost millions to their doom. I'm going where there's no depression, to the lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave the world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven. I'm going there. This was commercial radio. This was all over the place. People listening to it in their Ford trucks, okay? Now, at least you think that's old news and an old way of thinking. Guess where I heard that song? On a modern playlist from the band that birthed Wilco, okay? Alt-rock. And they were recasting the song in light of mental illness. No depression, right? Now, why do I tell you all this? Because these songs were formed by a misreading of the Bible. And they have sunk down so deep that my parents, were raised in the, who were raised in the shadow of the Depression, adopted this theology along with many, if not most, American churches. And I know from many conversations with you all that many of your predecessors did as well. And what did they do? They interpreted their time as the final judgment, like Depression. And how many of us got those videos in 2020, right? They were shared with me for sure and started hoping for the day when they would fly away, right? And we heard about a song at John Simon's graduation, I'll Fly Away. You've probably heard that one, right? Guess what? When that was written during the first year of the Depression. It was a similar theological sentiment to a really dark and difficult time in the world, right? And what does it lead to? It leads to what I would call escapism, where you become disinvested in the future of your life, your family, the world, and the creation. Now, it, at least it's hopeful. At least it has hope. I'm not discounting that. It does. But if you're wrong, it can actually harm those in the future who could have used your wholehearted presence and investment when you decided you just wanted to fly away. Because guess what? In the 30s, the Depression lifted, and the world did go on. 
And many people sat back waiting to fly away. And I've heard this sentiment in, the, in older generations, even recently, just say, I just want out of here. Instead of pursuing God's mission and investing in us. So what are we going to do about it? Right? Now, people still do that. They're modern-day parallels. And, and I think, like I said, I've got, I got those videos during 2020, but I want to go beyond that. I want to go to what I think are the movements birthed by this bad theology, and I would say one of those movements, you could say, would be our running to substance abuse and even suicide today. It is more prevalent than ever. Why are people doing it? Ask why they're doing it. To escape. Things are hard. It's the legacy of our bad theology. We can blame it on the world, or we can look at what we as Christians have fed to our world as the biggest ideal to escape. I'm going where there's no depression, right? And one, one might say, I'm not so sure it's heaven, so I'll just go to a vast and painless void or a euphoric and spiritual state, but it's the same idea. So if that's coming from a misreading of the Bible, what's the correct reading? Listen again to 2 Peter. For these people, the scoffers, overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word, that, these, that by, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Peter doesn't wrap this up as tight as Jesus, but I'll get to Jesus on this. But he shows us a key motive on the part of God, and we're going to start with that motive, exposure. From what I can gather, it's likened to the test, the idea of seeing what's going to last. Are these, what are the enduring elements? What is the good? And what is dissolved, as in the copper purification process and the fine metal purification process, are the impurities, not the good and precious metal itself. So the aim of God is to dissolve the effects of sin and retain that which is good. And the key parallel is the flood, which Jesus taught about in Matthew 24. Now, there's a lot in Matthew 24, but I want you to see something that's often missed. Here I am in verse 36. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, which should be the great defeater of all our predicting returns of Jesus moments right? We should stop that. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here's the parallel, the days of Noah. Okay, look at this. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day our Lord is coming. OK, 
Okay, maybe this hasn't affected you, this theology, but typically we, we hear about the two in the field and the two at the mill, and we think due to the prevalence of a newer and American theological innovation, we think the person being saved is being taken away. Taken away where there's no depression, taken away to heaven. But look closer, look at the parallel. In the flood, who inherited the earth? Those who were taken away? No. Noah and his family were left, right? Those who trusted in God's saving grace remain. Who were taken away? The wicked. Those who didn't heed the message of God's coming judgment or the offer of God's grace. So if that's the parallel, what should we expect to happen next? It, help, it helps, by the way, that this aligns with everything else the Bible is saying, that we should expect to inherit a restored earth, even to see the good works, the fruit of our faith there. Think about it. Noah, the good parts of his marriage, the good parts of his relationship with his family, even the stinking boat he built that was stuck up on a mountain were there. And he got to look at that little monument to say, remember when God delivered me, it was all there. Peter, in our big, long scripture, referenced the writings of the Apostle Paul, who said the same thing. Here's one of them, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 16. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Here's those building materials again. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. And this, the day, is the return of Christ. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire. This is talking about two people who believe in Jesus, right? And they're facing the day of the Lord, and they're, what are they? They're saved, and the works that are saved, which, what's taken away? It's the evil. It's the broken. It's the impure. What stays? The good works. The people of faith. The good works survive. The non-enduring elements are burned away. And the relational grace is seen in this, that even the sin and failure within us is burned away by the refining fire of God's grace. Yet we, who, who know his grace, remain. We pass through the flames. The Bible, you see, isn't as judgmental as trolls. It's not. In the Bible, the bad people who can receive grace, they get judged and saved. That's a beautiful thing. But least we, lest we go too far, Jesus does add in Matthew 24, but know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't expect. So, so the fact remains, we do need to be ready for this. It doesn't mean don't worry about it. We should be ready, though, to stay. Be ready to stay. So do we stay or do we go? I'm telling you, across Scripture, we stay. I wrote a, I wrote a new chorus for A.P. Carter's song and for Zach. Here you go. I'm waiting till there's no depression when lands and hearts are freed from sin 
will walk the earth in expectation, world of glory without end. So how should we feel? What should this foundational belief do to our souls? How should it shape our lives? I want to draw these right out of the Apostle Peter's words. How, how do you feel when you think of the end of the world? Think about how do you feel? How do you think about G- when you feel about Jesus' return? Most people I talk to are not really pumped, right? How should we feel? Here's what Peter tells us. Um, it's not my agenda. This is all coming from 2 Peter. Number one, we should be grateful because his waiting is because of his patience. Sometimes we hear this thousand years is like a day thing, and what we want to do is go like, ooh, how does time work in eternity? And, uh, and this is usually the verse for that. Um, unfortunately, I have to tell you, Peter just didn't care. Um, that's not what he was talking about. Um, you can analyze it all day, and if you, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say someday if you bring that up to Peter, he'll go, I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. Peter's point was this. He wanted his readers to see God isn't delaying the keeping of his promise. He's being extremely patient. And the reason why he's being extremely patient, according to Peter, is this. He wants more people in the kingdom. That's why. And we tend to think like there's, there's this, like, well, ooh, God, you know, he knows, he knows all things, and so he probably knows exactly who is going to get in. And, and I wouldn't disagree with that, but God is complex enough to have that information and also to desire that everyone would be saved. And he does. And he's being patient. He's being extremely patient. And we should be grateful. Every day we wake up and Jesus hasn't returned, oddly, we should be like, good. Have you ever been taught that before? I, I, nobody ever taught me that. Number two, we should feel really committed to our faith and good works. Peter wrote, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish. I want to give you a quick little Bible study tip. I wanted this to mean something else. I wanted this spot or blemish thing to have to do with like our good works out in the world. I thought, ooh, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit gets blemished. I was hoping for it. I went in and studied it. It's not, it's not about that at all. It's, it's sacrificial language. Um, it's, it's the sacrificial la- language where when God required a sacrifice for sin, he wanted the perfect lamb or he wanted the perfect crop from your field. And this is, this is symbolic um, that we should be holy that we should be Christ-like. And, and the truth that we all know, right, is that we're not. We're not the way that we should be. And so here, here's the deal. Um, our commitment isn't fueled by the possibility of us being Christ-like. Our commitment is fueled by the fact that Jesus was perfect and blameless and spotless and that he entered in to our living space, endured our temptations, and was spotless and blameless on our behalf, and endured the cross as a lamb to the slaughter for us. So our motivation isn't to get in when Jesus returns. It's not to be included. Our motivation comes from knowing that we are. Our motive is to honor and please the one we are so sure has done all the work for us. And that changes the reason you do it. You don't do it out of desperation or, oh, I just don't want to die and go to hell. You'll do it out of love. You do it out of love. 
But lest we think our works in this world don't matter and it's just our feelings, I want to re-engage Jesus in Matthew 24 one more time. This is one I would have loved to have left out. It's brutal. But here it is. In light of his return to restore the earth, Jesus gives a parable. He said, who's the wise and faithful servant in this situation? Who the master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant who his master finds so doing when he comes. Which means, blessed is the servant that that when the master comes back, he finds him doing what he was tasked to do, what he was told to do, right? He said, truly, I will say to that servant, I will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him at an hour he doesn't know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. Now, that's a parable. That's a story that explains a principle, but still, whoa. Cutting to pieces. What's the difference between the two servants here who are, who are shown to us? One feeds other people. That's the only thing it said. One feeds other people. A simple, basic act of obedience. The other abuses his fellow servants and associates with excessive fools. Christian leaders have been in the news, right? Who should read this verse and shudder? They should shudder. And that's why you never hear, by the way, a, I've never heard a skeptic come up to me and you say, you know what I don't like? I don't like verses 45 to 51 of Matthew 24. It's just judgmental. I've never heard it. Why is that? Because no one likes abusers and hypocrites. Some of you have been abused. I know it. And God does not sleep on that. His judgment is fierce. Sometimes I think you need to know that. We should feel a couple things here. If you're a victim of a hypocrite or an abuser, and I, look, I know everybody's imperfect, but some, some people just, just try to hurt you, right? You should anticipate and feel the vindication of God's justice for you. You should feel it. You know, we might find out about this guy in Buffalo. You know, he's got this 180-page manifesto about why he shot up the people in this grocery store. We might find out he has a theological angle on it, right? We might. This scripture is for people who abuse people in the name of God. And it's rough. We should feel it. But for those who want to please Jesus, imperfect as it may be, we should read this and feel absolutely compelled to do what? Just do the basic, simple work of serving others. That's what he says, just the servant who's told to feed people if he finds him feeding people. He didn't make it some high and incredible. He just said, the, the servant who's feeding people should be feeding people. Do what I told you to do. And, and, and that's all you have to do. And when I come back, I'm going to give you my treasury. I mean, I think that there's, there are parallels to this of like spiritually feeding people 
And I seriously think those of you who go back there and serve pizza out of that window, like, it's that basic. Just do what you, just, just obey. Just, just walk with them, right? Far too often when people start thinking about the end times, they actually stop doing the basic Christian calling. And here's, here's my go-to thing. I may have said it to you. I don't know. But I always say, okay, Jesus, let's say you're wanting to know when Jesus returns. I'm going to give you a scenario. He comes back tomorrow. I'm going to give you another scenario. It's another thousand years. What should you do tomorrow? It's the same. Same thing. And I can list, I can, I can, I can tell you what it is. Here, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you two big categories. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And you should look at what we were told to do in creation, fill the earth and work. And you should look at what Jesus told us when he left, make disciples. Do some of that. If he's coming back tomorrow, that's what he wants to find you doing. If he's coming back in a thousand years, he wants to see that from your life. That's what you do. Do you stockpile ramen? Do you create a compound? I don't know. I mean... If you're in Ukraine right now, yeah. Like, if somebody's attacking you, yeah. If you're going into the pandemic, sure. But, do it, but don't do that as a way of, like, waiting for Jesus. Do your basic, just, just do what your situation calls for. Going on vacation, pack a cooler. Just do what the situation calls for. But on the flip side, don't sleep and discount God's patience. Don't take this as, as an encouragement to, not to invest in your faith, because look, for you, Jesus could come back tomorrow. Because when, when's his return for you? It's the day you die. Right? He could crack the sky tomorrow. It could be a thousand years. But, but all of us, we're, you don't know. We're not promised tomorrow. So we should be doing what we're called to do, just, just the basics. And doing it in light of the grace of God, that because of Jesus we are considered without spot or blemish. Now all this talk of death, I'm almost done. With all this talk of death, we can get preoccupied because we are, um, we are to anticipate his return. Here's the third thing we should feel that Peter tells us, peace and stability. That's, those are the big ones he lands on, peace and stability. This is a stabilizing belief to believe that Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. I knew a young man who grew up in absolute chaos. His parents were drug-abusing, drug and they abused him. And this kid and I would read the Bible. And his favorite verse was Isaiah 25.8 because it said, one day God will wipe away all of their tears. And he just held on to that. And that's, that's right. A belief in the restoration of all things is a belief that God is going to make things right. It should give you more peace and more stability. We shouldn't be paralyzed or afraid, worrying, is God going to save us? If, if you even just want to trust Jesus, he's yours. All this, all this should incline our hearts toward God, to be thankful, to praise him, to trust our lives into his hands. At the end of this time, John's going to read a benediction over us, and it's the final verse, and it's a statement of glory to God, and it sums it up. It will just tell us how we should feel. We should glorify God. We should be at peace we should be stable, we should be committed, but we should be grateful, and we should be very, very hopeful. To end our time together, I want to lean into the promise of Isaiah. Um, 
I didn't read all of Isaiah 25, but there's another part. I just mentioned what that kid said, but here's a really cool piece. It says, in that day when he returns, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. You know what that means? He invites in everybody. He invites in people from the corners of the earth. And he gives them a feast. Now, this is because, and we come to a table now because of a promise that Jesus left us with that, that hints back to Isaiah. He left us with this weekly foretaste of his kingdom. He gathered around uh, a table with his disciples on a day when they, when they celebrated the Passover in ancient Israel, and he took the bread from the table, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And they didn't know what that meant, but we do. That means I am the lamb without blemish, and I'm being broken so that you can be accepted. So come and feed on me. And then he declares something that's coming. He says, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of many. It's, it's a new promise I'm making. And it's aged wine, well-refined. In Matthew 26, Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor, records Jesus saying this about that wine cup he held up. He said, I'm going to wait to drink this with you until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wow. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, tells us, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you declare his death until he returns. We should be hopeful. We should be anticipating. We should be full of peace and stability. And we should do what he calls us to do. So as we move toward this proclamation and receiving of grace and comfort, we're going to prepare our hearts in silent prayer. This is a time for you to just think on these things. Perhaps this was all quite a stretch for you. And you need to just go, uh, God, what? <laughs> and that's okay. You could do that. Maybe you as a Christian are, are wrestling through, like, that sounds very different than what I've been taught. Jesus, is this right? You can pray about that. Um, perhaps as you've heard this, you've thought, man, I need to follow you, Jesus, more wholeheartedly. And you can talk to him about that. And here's the good news is no matter what state you come to him in, he's extremely available and he loves to hear your prayers. And his, his movement toward you, his compulsion toward you is to be gracious, no matter where you're at. So I'm going to pray and leave two minutes of silence for prayer. After that, we're going to sing together. Um, I'll be administering the Lord's Supper to anyone who can say, I trust him. It's for you. After our time together doing that, we're going to eat together, which is our custom, and uh, spend time hanging out together as a community. So I'm going to pray. Leave two minutes of space for you. Father in heaven, thank you that we have something to look forward to in redemptive history. Thank you that it's good, it's beautiful, that you come into this world, the world that we love, we invest so much in. It's where we work, it's where we raise our families, it's where we go to the national parks and see the beautiful things, it's where all of our memories are. You come into here. And you say, I'm going to dissolve and melt away all that is broken and terrible. And I'm going to make a new heavens and new earth. 
and you're going to be there. Things are going to be the way they're supposed to be. God, that's what our, our hearts long to hear, but it's so hard for us to believe. It feels like too much. It feels too good to be true. God, give us faith when we don't have it. Have mercy on us for when we act out of our unbelief. Open our eyes so that we can see you. Open our hearts so that we can experience your grace. And lead us now as we pray.